Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Lease Accounting, What You Need to Know. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH's assurance professionals help organizational leaders ensure that the quality of its financial information is accurate and its processes are efficient. AGH's assurance group is one of the largest in the central U.S. with specializations in manufacturing wholesale distribution, governmental entities, construction, financial services, agribusiness, and public sector clients. Today's speaker is Stephanie Rose. Stephanie joined AGH in 2013 and specializes in audits of financial institutions, manufacturers, and governmental entities. She also has experience with employee benefit plan auditing. Stephanie received her Bachelor of Accounting degree from Friends University. She's, certified, she's a certified public accountant and a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and Kansas Society of Certified Public Accountants. The FASB's new leasing standard, ASU 842, will be effective for non-public business entities for fiscal years beginning after December 15, 2021. The standard provides a new framework for how leases are measured and reported in the financial statements. This webinar will help prepare participants to determine the value of lease liabilities and right-to-use assets and meet the financial reporting requirements of the new standard. Thanks, Mike. So today our main objective is just to understand what new reporting and disclosure requirements companies have to meet under the new lease standard. We'll also look at some practical examples so you can see how to apply the new standard to new and existing leases and also take a look at how your financial statements will change in both the statements themselves and the footnotes. So in February 2016, the FASB first issued ASU 2016-02 leases. Uh, which replaced the existing leasing guidance under ASC 840 with a whole new set of rules under ASC 842. Uh, that ASC was then modified with additional accounting standards updates related to land easements, uh, targeted improvements, there were some codification improvements, and then a couple of extensions of the effective date. Uh, the FASB issued this new guidance with the goal of increasing transparency and comparability of organizations' financial statements. Under former accounting guidance, not all of a company's assets or their related liabilities are obvious to users of the financial statements. Also, in order to avoid including some of those liabilities on their balance sheets, some organizations structure their leases so they could technically qualify as operating leases and avoid balance sheet presentation. So the biggest change and the main reason for the new standard is to present operating leases on the balance sheet. The leased asset gets presented as a right of use asset and the related liability shows up as a lease liability. One other change is just a terminology change. Uh, what were previously referred to as capital leases under old leasing guidance are now referred to as finance leases under new guidance. Uh, we'll talk about these more in detail later, but the requirements to report a lease as a finance lease, previously known as a capital lease, have changed as well. And finally, there are different and additional disclosure requirements under the new lease standard, especially as it pertains to operating leases. As I mentioned earlier, effective dates for the standards have been updated a couple times. Uh, as it stands right now, public business entities were required to implement for fiscal years beginning after December 15th, 2018, so the 1231-19 fiscal year end. And with ASU 2020-05, which was just passed in June, private companies and most others are required to implement for fiscal years beginning after 12-15-2021. So the December 31st, 2022 year end would be the first fiscal year end where the new standard is effective. Early adoption is still allowed for entities who want to go ahead and implement. Uh, the original lease standard also required that entities adopt using a modified retrospective approach. So the standard would apply to the beginning of the earliest period presented. Uh, one of the subsequent updates, ASU 2018-11, amended that requirement to give entities an option to initially apply the new standard at the adoption date, 
and just recognize a cumulative effect adjustment to the opening balance of retained earnings in the period in which the standard was adopted. So there are a couple options there for implementation. Uh, if companies don't elect the option to just show an adjustment to beginning retained earnings, they're gonna have to recognize a right of use asset and a lease liability in not only the period in which they implement the new standard, but also in all other periods presented in your comparative financials. So if you implement for the fiscal year in December 31st, 2022, you're also gonna have to show those assets and liabilities for the December 31st, 2021 year end if your financials are comparative. Now included in the new lease standard is a practical expedient for transitioning existing leases. Uh, this is kind of a relief package and it includes three items that have to all be adopted together. So no picking and choosing which of these you wanna take advantage of. Uh, and under this practical expedient for existing leases, there are three things that an entity does not have to reassess upon adoption of the standard. Um, first off, whether any existing contracts contain a lease. So whether you already decided that a contract is or isn't a lease, that decision can stand uh, and it doesn't need re-looked at under the new requirements. Uh, second, the lease classification for any existing leases. So if you already considered an existing lease to be an operating lease before you implement this new guidance, it can still be considered an operating lease. Again, you don't have to look at it again. And third, uh, initial direct costs for any existing leases. And that term is something we'll get into a little later on when we're looking at the value of right of use assets. But under this practical expedient, you don't have to go back and try to figure those costs out for existing leases. So the transition guidance does have some flexibility built in for existing leases. Uh, you still need to be aware of all your leases though, because they will all go on the balance sheet, but you won't have to go through the entire process that we're gonna go through today for all the leases that you already have. All right, let's take a break for a quick polling question. Um, where is your organization right now in your implementation process? Uh, are you already implemented, prepared to implement, but you haven't yet? Still trying to get it figured out? Nowhere close, or you're not sure. Okay, it looks like uh, about half of you are still trying to figure it out. So hopefully this will help get those of you who are, are still in the process of trying to figure out this newly standard a little bit better prepared for what's coming. Okay, so under the new lease guidance, there are really four main steps to work through to make sure you're correctly accounting for the right of use asset and the related lease liability. Uh, the first is to identify the lease in your contract or to determine that there is no lease, at which point the process just stops. And from there, you'll determine whether the lease is a finance or an operating lease. You'll calculate the initial value of the asset and the liability. And then on an ongoing basis, you'll make sure you're correctly recording the entries to amortize the asset and adjust the liability to its present value. So <clears throat> the first step that has to take place is determining whether a contract actually contains a lease or if it's some other type of arrangement like a service agreement. Uh, included in the new guidance is a handy little flowchart to help you determine whether or not your contract is actually a lease. So the first requirement is that there be an identified asset included in the agreement. Uh, an asset can be explicitly listed in the contract. For example, if you're leasing a truck and the lease specifies the VIN number, then that asset is explicitly identified. Uh, an asset can also be implicitly included in the contract. So if the lessor only has one asset that can meet the requirements of the agreement, but the contract doesn't specifically name that asset, this still counts as there being an asset identified in the agreement. 
Another thing to consider when deciding whether there's an identified asset is whether the supplier has substantive substitution rights. Uh, under the new guidance, there is not an identified asset if the supplier has substantive substitution rights. And to be considered substantive, the supplier's right to substitute an asset has to meet both of the conditions listed here. Uh, first, the supplier has to have the practical ability to substitute the asset throughout the period of use. And second, the supplier has to benefit economically from exercising its right to substitute, meaning the economic, the economic benefits associated with substituting the asset outweigh the costs. So if there's not an identified asset or if the supplier has substantive substitution rights, then a lease does not exist and you can end your evaluation here. If you do determine that the contract contains an identified asset, then the next step is determining whether the customer has the right to obtain substantially all of the economic benefit from the use of the asset throughout the period of use. So in a lot of the contracts you're probably gonna be evaluating as leases, the customer is gonna take physical possession of the asset. So under those circumstances, they're probably having ex exclusive use of the asset during the term. And if that's the case, they're probably getting substantially all the economic benefit from use. Okay, next step in this model is determining who can direct the use of the asset during the period under use. Uh, if the customer has full charge of how and for what purpose the asset is used, then you can bypass the rest of the flowchart and determine that yes, a lease does exist. Uh, on the other hand, if the supplier controls how and for what purpose the asset is used, then again, bypass the rest of the chart because no, this is not a lease. Uh, if usage of the asset is predetermined, um, like by the terms of the contract, then we need more information before we can determine whether we have a lease. So when the how and why of the asset's usage are predetermined, we have to consider whether the customer can operate the asset without the supplier changing the operating terms. If they can, then the customer is effectively driving the usage and this is considered a lease. Uh, if the answer to this question is no, so if the customer doesn't operate the asset or if the supplier can change the terms, uh, then there's one more shot for this to be considered a lease. Uh, and that is if the customer is the one who designed the asset in a way that predetermines how and for what purpose the asset will be used. Uh, if this is a yes, then we do have a lease, but if not, then we are out of situations in which we can consider this contract to be a lease and your evaluation ends with a no. So that concludes step one. Um, before we get into the next step, we're actually gonna stop real quick for another polling question. Um, so in this question, a customer enters into a contract with a trucking company to transport goods from Sacramento to Dallas on a specified truck. Uh, the truck is explicitly specified in the contract and the supplier does not have substitution rights. Uh, the goods will occupy all the space of the truck and the contract specifies the goods to be transported, the pickup date, the delivery date. Uh, the trucking company operates and maintains the truck. Is this a lease? Uh, a, yes it is. B, no, because there's not an identified asset. Uh, C, no, because the customer doesn't obtain substantially all of the economic benefits. D, no, because the supplier has the right to direct the assets use through the period of use. Or E, no, because the customer doesn't have decision-making rights and didn't design the truck. All right, it looks like half of us think that this is a lease and everybody else thinks no for different reasons. 
Uh, we're going to walk through the flowchart on this one, but before we do, just take a step back and think about what's happening in this example. Somebody's delivering goods for you on their truck. And so this is not a lease. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why answer E is the correct one. We're going to walk back through this flowchart. Uh, we can eliminate the other answers. Uh, there is an identified asset. The truck is explicitly identified, so option B is out. Uh, the goods occupy all the space on the truck, so the customer is getting all the economic benefit during the period of use, so option C is out. Uh, D is out because the supplier doesn't have the right to direct the assets used through the period of use. Uh, the terms of use, the goods to be transported, pickup date, delivery date, starting in any location, are all predetermined in the contract. But if we look at these last two boxes, uh, the customer doesn't have the right to operate the asset. Remember, the trucking company operates and maintains the truck and the customer didn't design the truck. So um, that's why this is not considered a lease. And again, if we take a step back, this is just a delivery agreement. So don't let yourself get bogged down in the weeds of your situation. Um, consider you know, the, the, the true arrangement that you're looking at. You don't own that truck. Um, you're not leasing it. They're just using it to deliver a product for you. So no, this is not a lease. Okay, so moving on, we finished step one, which was identifying whether the contract contains a lease. Uh, if you've determined you do have a lease, the next step is to figure out whether that lease is an operating lease or a finance lease, previously known as a capital lease. Uh, similar to the old guidance, there are a series of qualifiers that if a lease meets even one of these, it's considered a finance lease. Uh, most of these are similar to the previous guidance in spirit, but the wording has changed. Um, first up, if the lease transfers ownership of the underlying asset to the lessee by the end of the lease term, then this is a finance lease. Uh, that's a pretty straightforward one, and it's in line with the old leasing guidance. The next qualifier for a finance lease is what was previously referred to as a bargain purchase option. Uh, the bargain purchase option language has been removed from the guidance, but the idea is implied in the new standard. Uh, the new guidance says that if the lease grants the lessee an option to purchase the underlying asset that the lessee is reasonably certain to exercise, then it's a finance lease. Um, so if the lease includes what would have previously been considered a bargain purchase option, or the lessee can purchase the asset for like a dollar at the end of the lease term, then the lessee is probably reasonably certain to exercise that option and a finance lease exists. Now, under the old guidance, there were some hard cutoffs related to the percentage of an asset's useful life and fair value that would determine whether there was an operating or capital lease. Um, the new guidance takes away those clear-cut percentages and replaces them with more judgmental terms. This makes it so that companies can't structure their leases to be just under those thresholds in order to avoid being considered a capital or now finance lease. Um, although that qualification is a little less important under the new guidance since both require balance sheet recognition. Uh, under the new guidance, a lease was considered a capital lease if the term covered at least 75% of the asset's useful life. Under the new guidance, the phrasing has been modified to just say the major part of the economic life. Again, the idea is the same as in the previous guidance, um, but it allows for some judgment and it takes away the idea that a lease that covers 75% of an asset's life is a capital lease, but one that covers 74 is for some reason treated differently. Uh, similarly, the hard and fast rule on what percentage of the underlying assets fair value is covered by present value of future minimum lease payments has also been removed and replaced with vague wording. So 
present value previously had to be at least 90% of the assets fair value. Um, and under the new guidance, present value just has to cover substantially all of the fair value of the underlying asset. Uh, finally, there is one new finance lease qualifier that's completely unique to the new guidance. Uh, this fifth one says that if the underlying asset is of such a specialized nature that the lessor won't have any other use for it at the end of the, of the lease term, then the lease is a finance lease. As far as operating leases go, the definition is pretty much in line with the old guidance. Uh, if a lease doesn't meet any of the requirements to be a finance lease, then it's an operating lease. So that one's pretty simple. All right, before we move on to uh, initial measurement, we're gonna take a couple little detours. Uh, the first of which is to talk about lease and non-lease components. So once we've decided that we do in fact have a lease, we need to evaluate the different components of that lease as either lease or non-lease components. And non-lease components are gonna be things that don't actually transfer an asset to the lessee. Uh, in most leases where these exist, these are gonna be service agreements that are built into the lease. So then we have to allocate the consideration that's paid by the lessee to those different components. On the lessor side, this is pretty consistent with the new RevRec guidance, um, which requires you to allocate revenue from contracts with customers in a really similar way. Um, so before you calculate the value of the lease liability and the right of use asset, those non-lease pieces have to be carved out. Uh, now that being said, the new lease standard does include a practical expedient as it relates to these non-lease components. Uh, lessees can make an accounting policy election not to separate lease and non-lease components. Uh, that election has to be made by class of underlying asset, so you can't separate it for one leased building and not for another. Um, and if you elect this practical expedient, you do have to disclose that in the footnotes. All right, let's quickly also discuss how to determine the term or duration of your lease. Um, there is actually some judgment involved in figuring out what this is for your lease, so we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this definition. Uh, the first component of the lease term is the portion that's non-cancelable by either the lessee or the lessor. Uh, next, if there are any options for the lessee to extend the contract, management has to determine whether they're reasonably certain to exercise those options. If they decide at lease inception that yes, they are reasonably certain to extend, then those extensions are added to the lease term. Uh, if they're unsure, then those pieces don't get added in. Uh, last component, if there are any options to extend that are controlled by the lessor, uh, then those are also considered to be part of the lease term. Uh, now, one of the updates to the original ASU addresses subsequent reassessment of the lease term. Uh, there are going to be some instances in which the lease term might end up changing from what the lessee initially evaluates it to be. If that's the case, uh, the lessee basically recalculates their amortization schedules over the new lease term um, starting at the remeasurement date. Uh, the main reason you probably reassess your lease term is if your assumption about what was reasonably certain to happen turned out to be wrong. So if you thought you weren't going to exercise an option, but then you did, or vice versa, if you thought you were going to exercise an option, but then you didn't, you can modify your lease term and the related amortization schedules for the asset liability. Okay, last tangent. Uh, I want to mention an exception to the new lease recognition rules. Uh, the updated leasing standards don't require recognition on the balance sheet for a lease that has a lease term of 12 months or less, as long as there's not a purchase option that's reasonably certain to be exercised. Again, this is an accounting policy election, and it does have to be applied by class of underlying assets, so you can't elect it for truck A, but not for truck B. 
something to keep in mind though, when you're deciding whether you can even elect this exclusion is the definition of the lease term that we just went over. Uh, if the non-cancelable portion of the lease term is 12 months, but you're reasonably certain that you're gonna exercise an option to extend, then the lease term is more than 12 months and it has to go on the balance sheet. So um, even if your lease has an initial term of 12 months, you can't game the system and keep you know, saying, oh, well, it's only a short lease. I'm not gonna put it on the balance sheet if you know you're gonna extend over and over. And over. So those do have to be included on the balance sheet. All right, let's get into the fun piece, the math behind the right of use asset and the lease liability. Uh, we're gonna start with the lease liability because that amount is actually used to calculate the initial value of the right of use asset. So at a high level, the lease liability is measured as the value of future lease payments discounted to present value. Uh, the term lease payments includes quite a few components. Uh, first off are fixed future payments, which are the standard, you know, of 10,000 a year, five years. If you're reasonably certain to exercise options to extend, then the payments related to those options are also gonna be part of your fixed payments. Uh, next are certain variable lease payments, but with a pretty narrow scope. Uh, so only variable lease payments based on a rate or an index are included in the initial lease liability measurement. And you'll use the index or rate uh, at the lease commencement date to estimate those future payments. Any other variable lease payments like uh, payments based on occupancy rates or uh, percentage of sales, mileage, or number of copies made if you're leasing a copier or anything like that, those are not included here. Uh, they're just recognized as a variable lease expense in the period in which those expenses are incurred. All right, the next couple steps in this formula are dependent on how certain you are that you're gonna incur these costs. So if there's a purchase option at the end of the lease term and you're reasonably certain that you're gonna exercise that, um, then that price gets included in total lease payments. On that same note, if there are penalties for terminating the lease and you expect to incur those based on what you've determined the lease term to be, uh, then those also get included in your total lease payments. Once you've got all those components figured out, uh, you can calculate your total lease payments, discount that back to present value, and that gives you the value of your initial lease liability. So let's walk through an example of this. Uh, let's see enters into a 10-year lease of an asset with an option to extend for an additional five. Lease payments are 50,000 per year during the initial term and 55 during the optional period, all due at the beginning of the year. The lessee incurs initial direct costs of 15,000 uh, at the commencement date the lessee concludes that it is not reasonably certain to exercise the option to extend, and the rate implicit in the lease is not readily determinable, but the lessee's incremental borrowing rate is 5.87%. Okay, lots of information to digest, so we're gonna take this one piece of this formula at a time. All right, starting with future fixed payments, including any options to extend that are reasonably certain. Uh, I can see that our initial term is gonna be 10 years at 50,000 per year for a total of 500,000 in fixed payments. Uh, but only 450 of that is unpaid at inception since that first payment is made up front. So we're sitting at a future liability of $450,000. Now we do have options to extend for five more years at 55 per year, but since we're not reasonably certain to exercise the option to extend, we don't have any additional costs to include here. Uh, next up, certain variable lease payments. And remember, this is only variable lease payments based off of an index or a rate. Um, this lease doesn't have variable lease payments, so there's nothing to include here. Uh, moving on, we need to include the cost to exercise a purchase option. If it's reasonably certain, it'll be exercised. Again, this lease doesn't have that, so nothing to add there. 
and finally, termination penalties. And again, in this example, there aren't any, so nothing to add. Um, this is obviously a really simple example, but the takeaway here is that all of these pieces will get added in if they're reasonably certain to be incurred. Uh, and then they get discounted back to present value along with those future fixed payments. So at the end of the day, we've got $450,000 in future lease payments that will discount back to determine our initial lease liability. All right, let's briefly talk about the discount rate you're gonna to use to, to calculate your present value. Uh, if there's an interest rate that's readily determinable in your lease agreement, then that's the rate you should use. Uh, if the interest rate isn't readily determinable, then you can use your incremental borrowing rate. And this is basically the interest rate you'd have to pay to borrow a similar amount for a similar term, with similar collateral in a similar environment. Uh, so if you were gonna use a bank to finance a piece of equipment that you're leasing, it's basically what rate would you be able to get from the bank if nothing else in the agreement had changed. Uh, one other option for non-public business entities is to use a risk-free interest rate as your discount rate. Um, and the interest rate on like a three-month treasury bill is one that's often used as like a risk-free rate. Okay, returning to our example, we know we have future lease payments of $450,000. Uh, we also know that the company's incremental borrowing rate is 5.87%. And again, since we pay this lease at the beginning of each year, the lessee's gonna make the first payment of $50,000 and measure the lease liability at the present value of the remaining nine payments discounted at the rate of 5.87%, which is $342,017. Uh, I won't go through all the steps to set this up, but just know that this is something you can set up in Excel or there are a bunch of different softwares you can probably purchase to create schedules for this. Uh, I've got a really simple example shown here. Um, we've got net present value formula and cell B2. Uh, you can see the expanded formula and the formula bar. And again, you can see that we're not including that first $50,000 payment in the lease liability um, because it was paid at the commencement date. So it's not still a future lease liability. Um, and now the, the lease liability is gonna be measured this same way initially, whether it's a finance lease or an operating lease, um, either way, this is the number you're going to come up with. It's just the initial lease liability is the present value of future minimum lease payments. Okay, let's move on to the initial measurement of the right of use asset. Um, we've got another formula here to calculate the right of use asset, but we've already covered two of these components. Uh, the first piece of the right of use asset is just the initial lease liability. So once you've got that piece done, you're through the worst of the asset calculation. Uh, the next piece is any lease payment made at or before the commencement date. So uh, if you make a payment on day one of the lease, that payment is not included in the liability, but it is included in the value of the asset. Uh, initial direct costs are also added to the value of the asset. Uh, these are incremental costs that only occur if you actually sign the lease. So from a lessee perspective, this would generally be commissions or if there's already a lessee using the asset you're trying to lease, um, amounts paid to incentivize them to terminate their lease, like paying their early termination fees for them. There are some specific costs that the new guidance specifically says are not initial direct costs and shouldn't be included in the asset value. Um, these are general overheads like depreciation, uh, occupancy costs, if there are any unsuccessful origination efforts, um, cost for soliciting potential lessees or looking into potential lessees' financial conditions. Um, all of those costs could be incurred, and then at the end of the day, you could still be in a situation in which the lease doesn't ultimately get signed, so those do not get capitalized into the asset's value. Uh, lease incentives that the lessee receives are backed out of the total asset value, so these are going to be payments made to 
or on behalf of the lessee or any losses that are incurred by the lessor as a result of assuming the lessee's pre-existing lease with a third party. Um, so these could be things like upfront cash payments made to the lessee, um, payment of a lessee's moving expenses, uh, if a left or if like a lessor pays to terminate a lessee's existing lease. All right, let's look at one more polling question. Uh, which of the following should not be considered when calculating the value of the right of use asset? Lease payments made at the commencement date, payments made by the lessee to an existing tenant to incentivize them to terminate the lease, um, allocation of employee costs for time negotiating terms and conditions of new lease, or moving expenses paid by the lessor to the lessee. Okay. It's like about half of us think it's allocation of employee costs for time negotiating terms and conditions of the new lease. That is the correct answer. Um, you could have employees who negotiate terms and then somebody backs out and doesn't sign that. So those are some of those examples of, of things that are explicitly listed as not being included as initial direct costs. Okay, let's jump back to our previous example and go through the value of the right of use asset. Then we can jump into what the initial journal entry is gonna look like. So we already know that our initial lease liability is $342,017, which is that 450 discounted to net present value. And we know we made a $50,000 payment on day one. Yeah. Uh, we also know that we incurred initial direct costs of $15,000. Um, and we don't have any documented lease incentives. So our total right of use asset is gonna be $407,017. Uh, now that we've got all the pertinent pieces of information, the initial journal entry comes together really intuitively. Uh, we've calculated the value of the right of use asset and the lease liability. And then we've got the different cash pieces which are broken out separately here, just so you can see the inputs. We've got that $50,000 that we paid for the first fixed payment and the 15,000 in initial direct costs. Okay, moving on to subsequent measurement. Uh, now, initial measurement is the same for finance and operating leases, but subsequent measurement does vary depending on which type of lease you're working with. Uh, at a high level with a finance lease, the asset is depreciated on a straight line basis using an asset life that's equal to uh, the lesser of the estimated useful life of the asset or the lease term and less ownership transfers at the end of the lease, in which case you just use the estimated useful life of the asset. And the liability is increased for interest expense and decreased when payments are made. Uh, on the income statement, those two items are reported separately as an amortization expense and an interest expense. Uh, with an operating lease, the lease liability is recognized in the same way as for the finance lease. Uh, increased for interest expense, decreased for payments made. The right of use asset, on the other hand, is gonna be adjusted to be equal uh, to the lease liability plus or minus the items that are listed here. Um, on the income statement side, the lessee is gonna figure out the total lease cost, lease cost and amortize that on a straight line basis as a single lease expense. And we'll get into all of that in more detail in just a minute. Okay, so let's jump back to our previous scenario and work through what this is gonna look like starting with a finance lease. So we know our lease liability started at 342. At the end of year one, we're gonna adjust our liability for interest expense and payments made. Uh, we mentioned earlier that our incremental borrowing rate is 5.87%. So if we multiply that by our lease liability, um, we've got interest expense in year one of about $20,000, which we add to our lease liability. And that's, that's the end of our calculation in year one. That's where our lease liability stops. 
Um, now on the asset side, the asset is just amortized on a straight line basis over the life of the asset or the lease. Uh, we didn't have a purchase option in this lease, so we're going to use the 10-year lease term, which gives us $40,702 in amortization. Again, the journal here entry here is pretty intuitive once you've got the asset liability calculated. Uh, we've got a debit to amortization expense, which we calculated on the last slide with an offsetting credit to accumulated amortization, and then a debit to interest expense for the $20,000 we calculated with an offset increase to the lease liability. Remember, for the liability, interest increases it and payments decrease. From there, the process pretty much just repeats, except we'll also need to take into consideration the fact that payments are being made when we recalculate our liability. So in year two, we know we had to make a $50,000 payment up front, which would reduce our liability to 312 at the beginning of the year. So then at the end of the year, that's the amount that we use to calculate our interest expense, with, which comes to about 18,000 um, using our incremental borrowing rate. So our lease liability is gonna be calculated as last year's 362, less the $50,000 payment, plus the $18,000 interest expense for a total of about 330. For the asset, again, we're just amortizing on a straight line basis. Uh, the journal entry is virtually the same. We're just adding a line for the cash payment and updating the amounts. So in year two, the payments are greater than the calculated interest expense. So we have a net reduction to our lease liability. Uh, the process then repeats every year through the lease term, and you can see that in the final year of the lease, both the liability and the asset are reduced to zero. Uh, so this process is basically the same under the new guidance as it was under the old guidance for finance or capital leases. Uh, the big difference in accounting comes with the treatment of operating leases, so we're going to walk through that process too. Uh, using the same fact pattern, we know that our initial liability and asset are the same as they were for the finance lease. Uh, measurement of the lease liability is the same for operating leases as it was for financing leases, so our year one calculation is the same. Uh, now for the asset, we're going to take a step back and look at the income statement effect to sort of back into the adjustment to the asset. Uh, under the new guidance, the lessee is going to recognize into income a single lease cost, not a separate interest and amortization expense allocated over the lease term on a straight line basis. Um, now, total lease cost is defined as the sum of total lease payments, initial direct costs, and periodic lease costs recognized in prior periods. Uh, for this lease, we have total lease payments of $500,000, that's our 10 $50,000 payments, plus 15 in initial direct costs, and we don't have any costs from prior periods. So our total lease cost is $515,000 for this lease. We're going to allocate that on a straight line basis. So we're gonna end up having an annual lease expense of $51,500. Now we already know that we adjusted the lease liability by about 20,000. So the difference between that 51.5 and the liability adjustment is gonna be our adjustment to the asset. And in year one, that's $31,424. To journalize this again, there's one hit to the income statement, just a flat straight line lease expense. Uh, then we reduce the asset and increase the liability like we just calculated. In year two, we'll follow the same procedure, calculating the lease liability, just like we did for the finance lease, which is to decrease it for payments and increase it for periodic interest. And then the difference between our annual lease expense of 51.5 and the interest we just calculated is gonna be the reduction to the asset. Uh, the journal entry shows the annual lease expense of 51.5, cash out of 50, the reduction to the asset for the 33 that we just calculated, and then the effect on the lease is a net reduction of 31680. And we get to that amount by netting the interest we calculated 
in the payment that was made during the year. And if we go ahead and extend this schedule out, again, we get both the asset and the liability down to zero in the last year. Um, just one other comment on measurement of the right of use asset. There is a way to calculate these amounts that's not a plug based on the lease expense. Uh, the right of use asset is always measured as the value of the lease liability adjusted for prepaid or accrued lease payments, unamortized lease incentives, unamortized initial direct costs, and impairment of the asset, if any. So now we're looking at just the asset. You can see here on the left, the schedule that we already created. Uh, if we go back and recalculate these as the sum of the lease liability, which we've already calculated, plus any prepaid rent, which would be our $50,000 upfront, um, plus the unamortized initial direct cost, there's our 15,000 amortized on a straight line basis. Then we're gonna end up with the same numbers. Uh, and you can see our ending right of use asset is the same as when we calculated it before. And there you have it. That's the accounting treatment for a pretty standard lease agreement under the new standard. Uh, now, moving on to financial statement presentation. Um, for both operating and finance leases, both the asset and the lease obviously have to show up um, on the balance sheet. But the new standard also requires that the assets be presented separately from each other and from other assets. So you might end up with two right-of-use asset lines on your balance sheet if you've got both finance and operating leases. Uh, the same rule applies for the liabilities. Uh, the lease liabilities arising from finance and operating leases have to be segregated. They can't be combined into the same line item. Uh, as far as measuring those as current or non-current assets and liabilities, you're gonna apply the same guidance that you'd use for any other non-financial asset and liability. On the income statement, uh, as we mentioned earlier, for a finance lease, you're gonna recognize both interest expense and amortization expense into the income statement. Uh, these don't have to be separate line items like they do on the balance sheet. So you don't have to have like an interest from term debt and a separate interest from finance lease line on the income statement. This expense can just be lumped in with all your other interest expense. Uh, same treatment with amortization expense. Wherever you already have that, you can include that in that line item. On operating, or I'm sorry, on operating leases, you're gonna just recognize one expense. You're not gonna separate interest and amortization expenses. That line is just gonna be called lease expense and it needs to be included as a component of operating income. Okay, so on the statement of cash flows, operating leases are nice and easy. Those payments are pretty much all operating activities. Um, this includes any variable lease payments that are not based on an index, uh, as well as any payments made for those short-term leases, which if you think back, are those leases that have a term of less than a year and that we're not reasonably certain to extend. Uh, there is one less common cost associated with operating leases that gets dumped into investing activities. And that's if you have any costs to get the asset into usable shape or to where it physically needs to be, then those are classified as investing costs. Uh, all right, finance leases, just like with operating leases, if we have any variable lease payments that are not based on an index, um, those go into uh, operating activities. Uh, the principal portion of the finance lease payments goes into financing activities just like any other debt payments would. Um, and then the interest portion of the payments under finance leases gets accounted for under the existing ASC 320 guidance related to cash flows, um, which if you're a company who uses the indirect method means it's just going to get buried in net income. Okay, moving on to financial statement disclosures. Uh, at a high level, the FASB requires under this new guidance 
that lets these include quantitative and qualitative disclosures about these three areas, um, the company's leases, significant judgments made in applying the lease standard, and the amounts recognized in the financial statements related to the leases. Specific qualitative information that's required is listed here. Uh, lessees need to include a general description of the lease. They need to disclose the terms of any variable lease payments and whether those are included as part of the lease liability. Uh, if there are any options to extend or terminate, that information needs disclosed as well as whether or not those options are included in the value of the lease liability. Uh, we also need to disclose information about any residual value guarantees that were provided by the lessee. Um, and residual value guarantees are just guarantees uh, made by the lessee to the lessor uh, that the value of the underlying asset is still going to be a certain dollar amount when it's, refer when it's returned to the lessor at the end of the lease. Uh, if there are any restrictions or covenants written into the lease, those need to close. And if the lessee has any significant leases that haven't hit their commencement date yet, uh, but that create significant rights and obligations for the lessee, those need disclosed as well, um, including any involvement of the lessee on the lessee's part involving the construction or design of the asset. Okay, now for the quantitative disclosures related to leases under the new guidance, uh, this example uh, was pulled directly out of the standard. The different components that are explicitly required by the new standard include the lessee's finance cost, um, and that needs to be segregated between amortization of the asset and interest on the liability. Uh, we also have to disclose the cost of any operating leases. And if you remember back to our example, we calculated this as that annual amortization of $51,500, which was straight line amortization of total lease payments. Uh, any short-term lease costs or variable lease costs also have to be disaggregated within your disclosures. Um, and sublease income, if you have any, is shown as a reduction to your total lease expense. Um, now, this total is not going to tie to the lease expense line in your income statement, because remember, that amount is going to be just the operating lease expense, and we're including operating and finance leases in this table. Uh, other items in this table that are explicitly required by the standard are going to be um, gains and losses on sale leaseback transactions, uh, any amounts included in your cash flow statement for each type of leases, uh, some supplemental non-cash information, uh, weighted average of the remaining lease term, and the average discount rate, um, both of those disaggregated for finance and operating leases. Uh, and just a heads up, um, there is specific guidance in the new standard about how to calculate those weighted average lives and discount rates. So once you're to that point, there, there are some specifics there. Uh, not quite finished. Similar to existing requirements, lessees need to disclose the maturity of their finance and operating leases separately from each other and show the undiscounted cash flows for five years uh, and a total of the remaining years thereafter. They also need to include a reconciliation of those amounts back to the balance sheet for both finance and operating leases. Uh, this is going to look really similar to the maturity disclosures that are already required for capital leases. And if a lessee has a short-term lease or leases with related parties, that information also has some disclosure requirements. Uh, if the lessee adopts the practical expedient to not separate lease from non-lease components, uh, then that election also has to be disclosed. All right, we're going to squeeze in one more polling question. Um, how are you feeling now that you've had a quick rundown of of uh, the new standard. You're all right, he's ready and 
you still are a little better prepared, still not quite there or somewhere else. It's like most people are at least a little bit better prepared, so that's good. Um, okay, uh, I know that that is a lot of information, pretty rapid fire. Um, today, we wanted to just make sure that we were able, at a high level at least, to go through the kind of general journal entries you're going to see for kind of a normal lease, uh, both at setup and going forward, and the financial statement impact of, of the new standard. Uh, of course, there are a ton of other pieces of information included in the standard and in its subsequent updates that we don't really have time to dive into today. Um, but just keep in mind that if any of these situations apply to your lease, or if you have some other unique um, situation within your lease, um, there are going to be some additional nuances in the guidance that you'll need to consider. If you're interested in taking a deeper dive into any of these or other topics surrounding leasing, um, there is a question on the survey that you'll receive after the webinar about future content you'd like to see. So feel free to drop those recommendations in there. And I am going to go ahead and kick it back over to Mike. Stephanie, we did have a few questions come in here uh, while I was doing some of the closing housekeeping, in addition to the ones that came in earlier. So we'll try to get through all of them if, if we have the time. The first one is, what happens if the borrowing rate changes year over year? So the discount rate that you're going to use is set at lease inception. So um, if, you're, if your incremental borrowing rate changes, then that's, that's not going to affect the lease liability or measurement going forward. Um, if, the, if the rate implicit in the lease changes, then that will affect your, your measurement going forward. All right. Thank you. Uh, the next question that came in is, how would you classify common area maintenance costs in a lease or as a non-lease component? So maintenance costs are going to be basically a service arrangement that's included within your lease agreement. So if you're not electing to separate lease and non-lease, or if you're not electing the practical expedient, which means you are separating, then those would be considered a non-lease component. Awesome. And then the last question that I have, um, what are one to three things people should focus on as they're starting to get ready to implement this change? I know we had some people in the audience who hadn't started yet or still kind of felt unsure. So what are one or two, maybe three things they can focus on to kind of help alleviate some of that concern? So the biggest thing to focus on at this point for those people who haven't already implemented is identifying all your leases, um, especially for, for companies like um, you know, leasing companies that may have lots and lots of, of assets or, or airports have a bunch of leases to a bunch of different businesses. All of those leases are going to have to be accounted for. Um, and if you can get on top of at least um, putting together that list, um, you'll have a lot easier time getting these on your balance sheet as opposed to scrambling last minute to try and figure out what, you, what leases you've had for the last two years. Because again, this is a retroactive application. So even though you don't have to start reporting them until 2022, you're still going to have to record the leases that you had at the end of 2021. So um, now is the time to start um, amassing those lists. All right. Sorry. And I did skip over one that I, that came in earlier. Um, does COVID affect the deadline for implementation at all? Uh, it has. Um, the, there was a, an accounting standard update released in June that pushed it back a year. So this was previously supposed to be implemented for 2021 fiscal year ends. Um, but with that new ASU 2020-05, um, it pushed implementation back a year. So um, the dates 
noted at the beginning of this presentation um, have COVID already taken into account. Excellent. Great. I think that's going to do it for the Q&A. I don't see any other questions that come in. Again, I'd like to thank Stephanie for taking time to present today. Appreciate you all for attending, and hopefully we can see you at another webinar in the future. Thanks again.